Welcome to Plants and Pipettes, where we talk about molecular plant biology and things that are happening in the plant world. Uh, my name is Joram. I'm Tegan, hey. And yeah, um, another week, another episode. Um, yeah. You Joram just tried to play the music very aggressively to stop me from telling yet another boring story about how I'm technologically incompetent. No, nah, I, so. I thought you were done with the story, but... Um, <laughs> That's such a good that's <laughs> such a good advertisement for my storytelling skills. Like, but but I thought you were done with the story. Or, no, you're. I just literally started saying, and then I did, and you started playing the music. So <laughs> either you're bad at listening, or I'm probably terrible at storytelling. Probably a combination of both. Oh, we just put the first edit into the show, guys. We we said something. We already deleted it. That's that's how today's going. This far in five. What is it? 48 seconds in and we're already deleting things <laughs> because I'm, I'm very insensitive about everything um, so let's start and again let's start with something um, that is not offensive but I'm very happy about this is a correction that we got from Bianca Govi on Twitter about last week when we talked about sex changing in trees and uh, I said that apples have two sexes so you need two types of apple trees to get fruit and I was partially correct which in my opinion is the best kind of correct because you do which need two wrong. trees but you need them for different <laughs> reasons they um Oops. they do have um perfect flowers which means that the flowers have both the pistil and the stamen so they produce the pollen and uh excels but they are uh, most cultivars are self-infertile so they can't really make fruits on their own they need pollen mm -hmm. from a different genotype to make seed and fruit um, and that's just because there are different hybrids right there are things yeah. that we've bred and often when we breed things we screw with them a little bit and can sometimes accidentally make them infertile or deliberately make them infertile if as the case may be yeah and so thank you very much for um, the input Bianca um, that's very much appreciated and if you guys listening right now have anything like you want to correct that you know better than uh, than we know it which is very likely um, <laughs> <laughs> please like write in write us on, on Twitter or by mail or anything um, we're very happy to yeah increase our knowledge and get, get the stuff that we say more accurate um, yeah Unless you have comments on like the way I sound or the way I look, in which case, fuck off. <laughs> it's, it's nice that you really go this way. Like, uh, <laughs> immediately um, assume that people will critique you for that. Um, it's the internet. I'm a woman. It's it's highly likely that at some stage somebody will like yeah. comment on something. I no, actually, we're very lucky. The the Twitter responses and the the Instagram responses, and actually, everybody has been really lovely. Yeah, yeah. Apart so from that one guy who said that our website was useless because we should be planting trees instead of writing about science everybody has been <laughs> genuinely lovely <laughs> so yeah. i cannot complain how was your trip and i learned lots of things as well oh yeah sorry uh, yeah i didn't uh, again i interrupted your great storytelling i'm sorry Tegan. now i wanted to ask how the trip was because you took the train from berlin to london right yeah yeah it was actually really lovely so for those of you who don't know if you're traveling from berlin or london or the other way around you can take a train it takes nine and a half hours maybe a little bit more but that includes like the connection time so that's kind of from berlin central station to london king's cross which is kind of one of the central stations in london and it has two changes so i had to change in cologne and then change in belgium but there was wi-fi everywhere there was comfortable seats there was space um I was happy. I was pretty like chill. I read some book. I did some work. I um, sat, ate. Yeah, <laughs> it was like 
it was really enjoyable. I mean, it was obviously a bit longer than it would take to fly. Quite a bit more expensive, I guess. Um, the cheapest I think you can get is £60, which is actually very, very cheap for for a nearly 10-hour train trip and not that much more expensive than your average flight. But the one I took was um, maybe like 140 or something like that. So mm-hmm. it's yeah, not no. as cheap as flying, but I would say, and it is definitely longer than flying, but like it's not so much longer. It's maybe double the time. I don't know. I, I'm definitely going to do it again. For me, um, yeah, I think it's worthwhile. I work near the King's Cross region, so I can take the train after lunch to a half day of work and, and then be in Berlin by midnight. And that seems like a really nice way to meet friends without feeling terribly guilty about my carbon footprint all the yeah. time. So, yeah, I'll try it again. Yeah, I think I have to do that as well at one point. Um I yeah, come visit me. Yeah, yeah, I really want to. Um, shall we talk a little bit about science? We could talk about science. <laughs> <laughs> it's the paper of the week. Yeah, and this week's paper, I, I chose the paper, and it's about Robisco engineering. Um, the title mm-hmm. of the paper is Hybrid Cyanobacterial Tobacco Robisco Supports Autotrophic Growth and Pro-Carboxysomal Aggregation. Um, by Douglas um, Orr uh, from the lab of Martin Perry, published in February 2020 in Plant Physiology. Wait, I'm not sure. Is Douglas Orr in the lab of Martin Perry or... No. Because uh, Orr might be his own lab. Anyway, in any case, this paper has a lot of big names on it. So it's also got Maya Lin, who wrote um, the Nature paper about Rubisco engineering that came out a few years ago. Elisabetta Carmo-Silver is quite big in the field. Maureen Hansen as well. Um, so this seems like it's a group of people who are consistently working on Rubisco engineering, which is actually mm-hmm. yeah something we can talk about, I guess. Yeah, so let's just jump right into Rubisco engineering. Why do we want to engineer Rubisco? Because it's shit. <laughs> yes the worst enzyme on earth no it's actually the, it's the greatest but it's also the shittiest <laughs> i think i I've, I've written several blog posts on this and every time i write rubisco is the greatest enzyme on earth but it's also a little bit shit <laughs> and then go from there that's kind of my i mean it's it's the theme of rubisco it's 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 a good summary of what rubisco does it's the most abundant protein every plant has a ton of rubisco and we have a ton of plants. We should actually mention what rubisco does just yeah. for the, the non, so non-planty people. Rubisco is involved uh, in the carbon fixation on photosynthesis so it takes carbon dioxide and um, creates uh, other carbon compound. <laughs> I forgot the name of now. Is it pyruvate? No, it's no I should know this. There's a song. Rubisco, every now and then you take some ruby pee and, and mix it in with CO2. And then I don't know what it actually makes. <laughs> um, yeah, but it, it uh, turns it into organically bound carbon. And that's the main part where plants um, yeah, fix carbon so from the air and turn it into something that can be turned into sugars. Yeah, it's the actual enzyme which takes the inorganic carbon, which is the carbon dioxide, and makes it into an organic form. In this tire case, a um, three-carbon complex which then ultimately becomes sugars and thus fuels life on Earth. Dun, dun, dun. And yeah, it's in every photosynthetically active plant, um, which is most plants. And so uh, it's very important. And the thing about Rubisco is, yeah, it's a bit shit. Like, why is it a bit shit? Uh, Because every now and then some oxygen can jump in and that leads to photorespiration. Um, Which is also part of a song that Yara and I made up a long time ago (laughs) because we are nerds. 
Um, so Rubisco, its aim is to recognize carbon dioxide and use that to make this three carbon um, organic compound. But sometimes it doesn't recognize carbon dioxide and instead it sees an oxygen molecule and is like, hey, that's, that's kind of near enough, good enough. And it instead interacts with that oxygen molecule and makes a poisonous byproduct. And then that poisonous byproduct has to be detoxified and that takes a whole lot of energy and then like carbon gets lost from the system, reducing power gets lost, everything basically gets lost um, and it's a big pain in the butt. And it's all basically because Rubisco is not very good at knowing what it's supposed to grab out of the, the atmosphere. And different organisms have come up with different ways to deal with this. So um, there's a whole lot of organisms, mainly like algae and also cyanobacteria, which come up in this paper, which have different ways of kind of keeping Rubisco away from oxygen. So they make these kind of um, cages and they put the Rubisco in a cage and they only let carbon dioxide in and keep the oxygen away. Yeah, these are and called carbon concentrating mechanisms and you find mm -hmm. them in uh, a couple of places and um, one of the common places is the beta cyanobacteria. So, for example, like the Xenococcus and Logatus, which is a very common lab strain, um, has these carbon concentrating mechanisms with a shell around Rubisco to make sure that there's and no... And coincidentally, one of the protagonists of this paper. Yes. Um, And another thing about Rubisco is that um, it sort of can be uh, sorted into two groups. You can have a very fast Rubisco, um, but it uh, takes more often oxygen instead of carbon dioxide, so it's less selective. And you can have a Rubisco that is a very good at selecting um, carbon dioxide over oxygen, so you have less uh, photorespiration, but it's also much slower. And the holy grail in plant research is to find uh, a rubisco or to create a rubisco that is fast and selective or to mm -hmm. make the lack of selectivity not matter uh, anymore by concentrating carbon dioxide around it so it doesn't have a choice to pick uh, oxygen because there's just carbon dioxide around it. Um, and I think all of our listeners know that when Yoram says there's either one, the fast one, that's kind of crappy at selectivity or there's the slow one that's like better he doesn't mean it's a binary he means it's a continuum yes but the aim is to make it better in all ways yes. so that it's um as with many things in this world there is no binary there is a continuum um but the aim is yeah to make a rubisco which can be both fast and good at selecting or can be fast and then we help it kind of select by making these carbon cages Yeah, something like this. And the idea is that if we just get like a few per, um, few percentage points better Rubisco and can put that into crop plants, um, just like a two, three, five percent gain in Rubisco um, efficiency would mean a huge um, uh, effects on the yields. It would fix much more carbon that would go in more fruit uh, or in like taller plants. If we talk about trees, for example, where you want to harvest the wood, um, so. The plants just have more carbon that they can spend. And when they can spend more carbon, usually we can push them in the direction that they sp uh, put the carbon in the fruit or into whatever we are interested in in the plant. This was like the kind of first like, whoa, fact that I saw in this paper, which is in the introduction and not in the findings of the paper itself. But there's previous modeling that has been done by McGrath and Long in 2014. And they thought if you could put a carbon concentrating mechanism, like the one that you find in these um, cyanobacteria that Yara mentioned, into a land plant, like for example tobacco in this paper, you might be able to increase photosynthetic rates by as much as 60%, which is just huge. Like at the moment when it comes to crops, 
what we basically we've we've basically improved everything we we can as far as like how they grow and how much of their energy they put into their grain so that we can eat it so the basically the only thing we can really easily improve upon is photosynthesis and increasing photosynthetic rates by as much as 60% would be just huge as far as being able to increase food production for the world yeah however we don't have a carbon concentrating mechanism in land plants yet right usually we find it in cyanobacteria or green algae so um it's well we don't have we don't have this we have like these other things like c4 um plants or like cam plants which um, i'm not going to talk about here but it's it's ways of basically concentrating but we don't have the the nice uh, shell that goes around a rubisco where only carbon dioxide is inside and no oxygen um and that would yeah that would lead to massive increases in productivity if you could have that and um yeah we already mentioned it sunicococcus elongatus um this cyanobacterium has this carbon concentrating mechanism has this shell and one very important protein to um to be involved with this shell with the carbon concentration mechanism is ccm m35 and uh, so the goal in this paper was um that they wanted to take the first steps towards a carbon concentrating mechanism in tobacco and um, Mm -hmm. to do that they wanted to use this linker protein the ccm uh, m35 uh, to introduce that uh, together with a part of the rubisco of the rubisco from the xenococcus from the cyanobacterium and then see if they could uh, sort of set the groundwork for the for the first aggregates for the first things that come together to sort of form this uh, carbon concentrating mechanism and just like as i mentioned before this is kind of building it's building on a lot of work so there's been this is a really active field at the moment because yeah this improvement of photosynthesis is just a really important thing for kind of yeah feeding the world as we mentioned but it's like generally is what we're aiming for as plant scientists overall i would say um so this is building on something that was published in 2014 or 2015 in Nature called a faster rubisco with potential to increase photosynthesis in crops. And they're basically a similar group of authors, at least um, Mayat Lin, Martin Parry and Maureen Hansen, sorry, um, put already both the large and small subunits of rubisco. So rubisco is made up of um, two different types of subunits which come together in like a multimer. Um, from the Sinococcus into tobacco. So they put all of them together and they also had to put an extra assembly chaperone from the Sinococcus. And with everything from the Sinococcus in the tobacco, they managed to establish this Sinococcus rubisco in tobacco. And I have to mention that the plants were not happy, which is basically a theme of rubisco engineering, I would say. Usually the plants are not happy. And they didn't accumulate much rubisco of the Sinococcus rubisco, but they did accumulate some of it. And per unit of enzyme, there seemed to be a faster rate of um, rubisco activity than there was in the native tobacco rubisco. But yep. again, there wasn't very much of the enzyme, so the plants were still not overly happy. Yeah. But this is kind of what we're building on here. Sort of had to flush them with elevated CO2 so that they... yeah get a ton of co2 into the system compared to regular conditions so that they can actually survive and grow um and so now in this paper they sort of went a step further and uh that didn't put the entire rubisco genes like the large and the small subunit from the cyanobacterium into tobacco they just used the large subunits um and Hmm. replaced the 
uh, I think they replaced the subunit, uh, the large subunit of tobacco in, um, yeah. yeah, in their model plants. So the nice thing about uh, the system that they were using, which is chloroplast transformation, so they put the gene nut in the nuclear genome, which is what we usually think of when we think about DNA and genes in a plant and the genome. They put it in one of the other two genomes in the plant, which is the chloroplast genome, um, and there you can very selectively. Um, choose which side you want to integrate your transgene into and you can also replace a transgene so you s sort of swap out the tobacco uh, rubisco subunit with the cyanobacterium subunit um, and then um, they express as well the CCMM35 linker protein this sort of helper protein for this carbon concentrating mechanism and uh, looked what happened and if these plants could survive. Yeah, and I think we can make kind of a bit of a long story quite short here by yeah. saying, yes, once again, the plants did survive. So they were actually able to make something which had a hybrid, which contained the um, large subunit coming from the Synecococcus and then the small sub, no, the other way around. The large one from Synecococcus and the small one from tobacco. And the small one from tobacco, that's correct. So, um, and it, it did make some sort of rubisco, which did have activity. But once again, there wasn't very much of it, and the plants were very, very sick. Yeah. So they did various different um, activity measurements and kind of looked at how um, much um, I'm, I'm losing my words here, whether the the plant was capable of actually like doing photosynthesis, basically, and it could, but again, not great, not well, and it was very sick. Yeah, and they also had to use elevated CO2 levels to make them grow, and they had very strong growth delays. And for some of the um, uh, some of the mutants that didn't express this linker protein, they also couldn't uh, grow them just from seeds on soil. They had to go through tissue culture, which means that you supplement the plant with available sugars and so on. So they really suffered um, and... Yeah, they were not yet there that they were um, these fantastic new plants with this increased yield. But what I find very exciting about this paper is that you have these two parts of, a, of an enzyme uh, from two different organisms that are very far apart from each other. So a tobacco plant and a cyanobacterium, they are evolutionary speaking quite far apart. And now yeah, you take so just to remind you, so yeah. cyanobacteria is, is not a plant, it's not an algae. I mean, it's sometimes called blue green algae, but it's it's a bacteria which just happens to photosynthesize in a kind of different way, right? So it's the kind of, okay, it's the guy that originally made the chloroplast, but... But still, yeah. even within land plants, we see quite a diversity of different rubiscos mm -hmm. and we go even further away from land plants and we don't even stay within the eukaryotes, we go to the prokaryotes. Um, and still, uh, these researchers managed to put these two di very different, uh, these these two parts from the very different origin together, and they worked together. Um, mm. And even though this didn't immediately result in in like a super plant, um, it it showed that there is a possibility to engineer Robisco. So, with this knowledge now, maybe we can start combining different types of uh, large and small subunits. Um, to maybe create one that is uh, very selective and very fast or that can work well in a sort of artificial carbon concentrating mechanism. I mean, the other thing to me that was kind of cool is that they found, so they did two different types. They did one which was um, just the large subunit by itself, so um, from the Synecococcus trying to interact with the small subunit from tobacco. And then they did a second um, transformation where they also included this CCM35, so this kind of helper thing. 
And they found that when they had CCM35, they actually got a more active enzyme. And this is one of the problems when you make these different um, uh, hybrid enzymes that sometimes they don't come together quite right. The, the pieces don't fit together. And Rubisco itself, it has eight large subunits and eight small subunits which all come together to make a ball so I kind of imagine it like these these puzzles which you have like kind of a straight looking piece and then you have to fit all of them together and mm -hmm. you get a ball and then when it comes apart you're like how does this even make a ball again and personally I can never do it um, and they found that when they had this kind of like helper they actually got more stability so maybe this is a clue that they can um, use things like this kind of chaperone things to actually help get everything to, to form together and not fall apart, um, which might be a clue for making these hybrids in the future. I have like one favorite quote from the paper, which I appreciate a lot, just having some familiarity. One of our friends was working on um, Rubisco engineering and it basically says, the poor photosynthetic performance of these transplastomic lines in the absence of a functional CCM carbon concentrating mechanism with all necessary components is unsurprising. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's very late. Um, I think that's a good statement on where we are at the moment with um, yeah. Rubisco engineering. So as Yoram says, we're not expecting to make super plants at this stage. We're just expecting to get something that kind of like yeah. does something so we can learn from it and then go to the next step. It's really an iterative process. Yeah, many, many other attempts before, they didn't really work out at all. And so whenever the plants are able to assemble a rub Rubisco and fix some carbon and grow, even if it's very slow growth, it's already exciting because this shows that this is the right direction and then we can iterate mm -hmm. and make it better and more efficient and eventually we might get uh, like a cyanobacteria-like carbon concentrating mechanism in a land plant that has these like promised 60% of efficiency gains. Um, yeah. So yeah, a very nice paper on um, Rubisco engineering. Uh, again, this is uh, first author is Douglas J. Orr, and the last author is Martin A. J. Perry. Hybrid cyanobacterial tobacco Rubisco supports autotrophic growth and pro-carboxysomal aggregation. Almost got through this title. Um, <laughs> published in Plant Physiology in February this year. favorite plant yes this week i also am um, in charge of uh, talking about my favorite plant and i chose a plant um that is quite unique in its way in the in the way that uh, not where it grows and how it grows but when it grows um i'm talking about a plant i'm talking about a silene stenophilia maybe you have heard that its story is already a little bit old about Silene. Mm -mm. Um, Xenophilia means it, it likes strange environments. <laughs> but you already kind of hinted at that. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's the environment is, the, is Siberia, so what we modern day Siberia. Um, but the interesting thing about this plant is that it was uh, sort of regenerated from tissue found in permafrost. So this is a 30,000 year old plant um, and they found fruit tissue with uh, unripe seeds and then they regenerated the fruit tissue tissue to create mm -hmm. a new plant. And it's, that's not, not, yeah, a new plant in terms of like another generation of the plant, but the plant actually is quite old, 30,000 years old. And um, they managed to to have it grow, set seeds, and go through multiple generations afterwards. So fully restored this plant where they found a little bit of tissue 
in the permafrost. Um, there's a paper mm -hmm. about this in PNAS. Um, uh, I should say PNAS. It sounds a bit nicer. Mm -hmm. um, that's from t uh, 2012 uh, with uh, from Svetlana Yashina. Um, and yeah, it's it's just an interesting read. The the paper just basically covers the story. They they excavated this permafrost, uh, t uh, this tissue from permafrost, and um, used tissue culture to regenerate um, first shoot material from this this fruit tissue and then roots, and then could put that on soil, and then this plant would set seeds and go through several generations. And when you look at the plant... Are you sure you haven't talked about this plant before? I'm fairly sure that I haven't talked about this before. I hope I didn't talk about this before. If I talked... I do like... I feel like we've talked about stuff coming out of permafrost, but it might have been woolly mammoth. Yeah, I think we talked about the mammoth. Um, and Maybe. I hope so. Anyway, I found this plant uh, exciting. And it's so exciting i'm happy that we talk about it twice although when you look at it it looks fairly unspectacular it, it actually resembles arabidopsis a little bit from its size and general growth you sort of you don't have the, the rosette leaves that you have in arabidopsis but you have sort of the bushy leaves at the bottom and then you have like shoots coming up with white flowers um that also like don't look completely different from arabidopsis flowers so we put a picture uh, in your podcast app right now so you can look at the plant uh, i just found it exciting that that is very like very old plant that they can grow now and yeah pretty much can do some studies on like evolution on it um but even if it's just to show that we can take tissue from permafrost and turn it into a living thing again i'm quite excited about this i mean it's pretty much no, it's not exactly jurassic park right they used amber and not mm. for permafrost but Today I want to talk about May Nango and she's one of the co-authors on a study that came out at the end of February, no, in the middle of February in Nature Communications and the study is called The First Australian Plant Foods at Majedbebe I'm not sure if I'm saying that right Majedbebe um, We'll put the link up, I'm sorry for my mispronunciation um, but it's 65,000 to 53,000 years ago. So this is a study where they looked in the north of Australia, so um, up near Darwin at the very kind of top of... If you imagine Australia is not the pointy tip, but it's kind of like the bulgy tip on the other northern side. And this you is one of the... You assume a lot of knowledge about Australia from our listeners there. <laughs> is it like the north, uh, south, guys, east or west end of Australia? North, it's far north. Okay. Guys, Again, learn you say my that homeland. As if we should know this. <laughs> I just did. It's like not the pointy. Like you can imagine Australia. It has a kind of pointy tip on the the eastern side, and then it's kind of got a more roundy tip on the western side. It's like the roundy tip bit there. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, um, so <laughs> up in this roundy tip bit, there's a um a land or an area called the Majebdi Majed Bebe I don't know how to say that Majed Majed Beeb Majed Beeb is maybe the most likely so there's a rock shelter in northern Australia which is supposed to be one of kind of the earliest places which was occupied by humans or it's like a site that we still have that has one of the, the oldest known occupations by humans and this is a study which basically finds evidence for different um, forms of preparation of food um, for then eating in this area and it's one of the oldest that we know which shows this kind of varied diet but also food processing to get a varied diet in this region um, 
And May Nango, as I said, is one of the co-authors on this study. And I read a really nice uh, kind of blog post by the corresponding and first author, S. Anna Florin, about how the study kind of went about. And she mentioned that one of the really important parts of the study, of course, is that there was cooperation between um, the kind of lab scientists and the indigenous landowners to get access to this kind of source. And basically that the research was only possible because of this cooperation, but also because they actually went out on the land and looked at the different types of foods that are available on the land now and can be eaten. So we'll put a link to that um, kind of blog post as well. But... Um, this is kind of a really important thing which we've been discussing recently in science, the interaction between local people, um, especially indigenous populations who know the land very well, and um, people coming from like maybe richer lab environments, and how this is a very important thing moving forward in science. So just to mention who May is a bit, there's not so much information on her personal life um, on the internet that I could found, find, but she's one of the Mirar people, um, so an indigenous um, peoples from the north of Australia. And she's actually um, part of this representative um, corporation called the Gunjaimi Aboriginal Corporation. Um, which is kind of representing the people in this area. And some of you might know internationally of Kakadu National Park. So this is kind of this region. It's quite an mm -hmm. important national park in Australia, in the north of Australia. And so she's been involved in representing uh, the Mirar people, but also in facilitating this kind of access, this scientific access to native lands. And apart from this study, which was, you know, the first Australian plant foods found 65,000 years ago, which is a hell of a long time ago. She's also um, part of, or she was previously part of a study she's acknowledged in a nature paper which came out ooh, a few years ago. I don't have it, but we'll put the link in the bio um, where they found, um, they did an excavation and they found the oldest evidence of our Abor Aboriginal habitation in the same kind of region. So this is now 80,000 years ago. Mm. So indicating that Indigenous people have been on Australian lands up to as, as at least 80,000 years, basically, or 65,000 to 80,000 years. So um, yeah, basically, her local knowledge and Indigenous knowledge of this area has really helped the understanding of how people came to Australia and then um, developed in Australia, which also has a lot of implications for global human history. So that's um, May Nango, um, and you can read her her paper, The First Australian Plant Foods at Majebib, <laughs> I'm sorry, 65,000 <laughs> to 53,000 years ago in Nature Communications, but there's also a really great blog post on it. Yeah, all the links in the show notes as always, and uh, yeah, thank you for, for bringing that. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, 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 bias. Do you think I can have John Oliver's accent by the end of this year? I really hope so. I mean, everything. Like not just the the kind of like British thing, but also sound like a British man. Yes, I, I, it would make it so much more pleasant for me, um, because honestly. It's a struggle. For <laughs> it's hard talking to a woman. It's just hard listening. We have those high-pitched whining voices.
um, I present uh, or like I I looked at a, at at actually I found now the the thing that you always talk about like this this like wheel of biases with the different quadrants with the different areas. What after like seven seven weeks you found yeah, it? Yeah, um, before I was always just like looking on Google for biases, and now I'm looking on Wikipedia for biases. So big I thought we were systematically going through the wheel. I thought that was the whole point of this thing. <laughs> What? Apparently, um, I'm very slow with this, um, but now let's celebrate that I found it. And actually, the things uh, that I talked about, they were often on the wheel as well, um, without me knowing it. Uh, so, Well done. Um, so there's a new method that I'm using now, and it's a better method. And that's also the bias I want to talk about, the, the appeal to novelty. Um, this idea uh -huh. that new is always better. Um, and in the article about it, there is this, this uh, phrase that's terming, or that's calling it chronological snobbery, which I quite liked. Um, this <laughs> idea that just because something is new and you're using the new thing, you're like looking down on everything to slightly older, mm -hmm. less new than your fancy thing. And uh, it has a lot of applications in like everyday life where... Um, they, they give some examples like if you want to lose weight your best bet is to follow the latest diet is obviously false the the, um, the chrono uh, chronology of a diet has no impact on whether or not it's an effective diet um, mm. so uh, but there are also some things that are quite uh, like that, that I saw or that reminded me of, of research like the department will become more profitable because it has been uh, re reorganized uh, which is something mm -hmm. like big changes and you try to, to make it for the better and it doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be better. Upgrading all your software to the most recent versions will make your system more reliable. Also not true. Mm -hmm. If anyone uses a Mac, um, not, not true. <laughs> no, not true. No. Um, the recent updates, they were quite quite terrible. And I think it also applies to science. When we um, do research with like very new methods and they're very exciting and fresh, it can lead to a tendency to look down on research that is done with like established older methods. Because you say, look, we have like this new machine, this new thing mm. that we look at now. And while usually I think in science, new is better because we stand on the shoulders of giants like we we improve on things that we've done before so did you come up with that that's amazing yes it's it's i i coined that <laughs> phrase actually if you look it up oh my god you're me. so wise yarm <laughs> um i think i like i use cliche quotes like 15 times a week and the one time you do it i'm like mocking <laughs> you for it. <laughs> being very smug about it is like <laughs> I'm just happy as a, as a non-native speaker that I do know any quotes uh, like this. You're welcome. Um, but um, yeah, so in, in science, we sometimes have this <laughs> idea that we just, because something is like the fresh, new, cool stuff, it's the better stuff. Yeah. And it's not always true. So like check your bias uh, in, in concerning novelty um, when you like value or like think about certain um, yeah, methods or approaches or schools of thought in research. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Yoram, I have a question for yes. you. This comes from Science Magazine, and it's a um, an article, a piece called "Don't Be That Guy: A Guide to Asking Non-Stupid Questions During Scientific Talks." And we often hear that there are no stupid questions. Have I talked about this before with you? Um, <laughs> I mean, don't you've Google talked it about yet. Like, I, how stupid the questions are that I <laughs> ask sometimes. Yeah. So, um, 
I don't know, this is quite a nice story. You should go and read it yourself because it starts off with him talking about his young daughter reading a sign that says, there are no stupid questions. And she was upset because she thought she wasn't allowed to ask stupid questions anymore. <laughs> but it actually said, there's not any stupid questions. But then he talks about how actually there are stupid questions. And I wonder if you could guess any stupid questions, Yoram, in the context of the scientific environment. Uh, Don't Google it. No, I'm not, I'm not Googling it. But in terms of, I sort of need a topic that I ask a stupid question about. Or just like... No, no, not the topic. Like the, the style of question which you've heard before, which you're like, oh, why are you asking that? Like there's kind of some, there's some uh, certain... I, 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 what, what I personally absolutely hate is this is not a question, this is a comment, which is, I don't okay, think... Okay, so that's one of yeah, them. It, yeah, it's... The question that ends in a period is what he calls it, <laughs> and he said, these are called comments. Yeah, and even if you like introduce it with, this is not a question, this is a comment, it doesn't make it better. Just... Okay, that's one of them. We've got six more. Uh, six more. Um, the question that leads to your own research where you just want to sort of display that you know things and that you have worked on it where you're like I don't know isn't it the case that like Rubisco actually has also or photorespiration is also a very important point in, in the plant okay so there's one called a special question just for you which says this is not Snowflake McUnicorn's personal afternoon chat so it's like if you ask a question you should extend the discussion not make it just for you so that would cover that so okay um, the comment the question just for you what else what else is annoying um, Come on, what have you seen before? Yeah, I'm, tr I'm trying to think now. It's uh, unfortunately it's been a while since I've been exposed to very bad questions in a in a seminar. Um, maybe like questions that I like write on the the slide that we're looking at. Like you you're looking. Okay, at the question that reveals you weren't listening. That's one of them. <laughs> yes. Um, yep. The next one question about the why don't you just do it in yeast so <laughs> the complete lack of understanding <laughs> of the, no the complete lack of understanding of the motivation and why a person does a type of research mm, that's not one of them ah, cool i found a new one <laughs> that's annoying <laughs> i think I've, one more let's try try one more um, time i try to think what what else did i find annoying when people what else come on you know something else that's quite common uh no i'm drawing a blank yeah like, i don't know I, I can't put it into words what's what's the mo the motto of the plants and pipettes podcast uh we say no to plants no that's the motto with my child um <laughs> uh, don't be a dick uh, yeah don't be a dick yeah the, a dickish question like personal aggression yeah yeah, so questions ask compatibly. So, okay, this is, you've got like a few of them. So the angry ones, the special question just for you, the question that ends in a period, which is actually a comment. Pandora's question, when it just keeps on going, like, oh, I've got this and this and this and this. Like, you get to pick one, maybe two. Um, a randomly timed one, so like one halfway through. The question where you haven't thought of the question before you ask the question, so you're like, mm, uh, uh -huh, okay, I'm just a little... Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> and we know some people who do that. <laughs> the question that somebody else just asks, which is kind of just an extension on the question that reveals that you weren't listening. And then finally, the, the question that refers to a slide that you can't remember. So like, um, yeah, I think if you just go back, um, no, one more back. Um, yeah, that one. Uh -huh, <laughs> yes, uh -huh. yes, absolutely. Yes. I know. Which I think if you... No, I know every single... <laughs> one of them yeah i think if you're a scientist this will seem all too familiar possibly from other um fields of work as well but in any case go and check out don't be that guy a guide to asking non-stupid questions during scientific talks by adam rubin <laughs> over on science it's really awesome yes. that sounds really good um i want to take the opportunity to sort of 
talk about the coronavirus because it's been on the news and um mm -hmm. i sort of just want to not i think it's no point in summarizing like where it's been detected now and so on um but i recently for for someone else i was looking up like some like calls to action like what can you do what is the current situation do we have to be worried and i sort of thought it might be a good idea to talk about this here as well um so i i looked a little bit at the uh, who um website the world health o organization which has the worst acronym because if you google for who um you get all sorts of other things um oh yeah that's something we should talk about generally like our research like Yeah, when you think of an acronym for your tool or for your plant or whatever, make it Googleable. Yeah. Um, we have one at, from our old institute, which is a really amazing tool. It's called PlanNet because it's plant networks. But if you Google Planet, you can't find shit. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> also, if you add, uh, like, add words like plants and so on, like if you look for you planet and plants, it's just how how will you ever find it? So yeah, make it unique. And I mean, for the World Health Organization, I mean, it's more likely that you find it. It's just like I was looking for like who and coronavirus and, and it gives me all kinds of other things uh, except uh, um, the World Health Organization stuff. But The point is, um, the risk assessment has been set now uh, in the last week to very high for the coronavirus um, uh, spread, which is just one level short of a global pandemic, which mm -hmm. sounds quite uh, worrying, and I think it is. Um, but they also give a couple of um, tips how to av avoid getting the coronavirus. And I think these are things that we should uh, adapt even outside of a global pandemic. Uh, which is first of all wash your hands with soap and wash them regularly uh this My, mm -hmm. uh, uh corona was found in berlin for the first time a couple of days ago and my friends in berlin were noting that there was a huge run first on toilet paper yeah which everybody every time there's some panic people buy toilet paper but secondly also on hand soap which made my friend quite concerned about how often people in Berlin are like not washing their hands normally like you uh, should be buying house soap anyway you don't need a ton more soap now you just need to like wash your hands regularly yeah. but you should be doing that anyway like hands are dirty <laughs> don't touch things and then just don't wash them <laughs> exactly but yeah i mean they also they they bought all sorts of things like i try to buy flour for a couple of days now just like a normal amount of flour because i want to bake and all the shelves are empty people stockpile flour because they think they can make their own bread now uh in case they they have to go into a lockdown um so it's okay been, so we should wash our hands regularly now what else should we be doing we should um not touch our faces uh especially mm -hmm. not our like mucous membrane so don't touch your your nose your mouth or your eyes with your hands um, fun fact i saw two out of three on the tube this this afternoon when a guy was picking his nose and eating it <laughs> yay well, welcome to london <laughs> yes. a grown man <laughs> you shouldn't do that especially not on the tube uh, where you potentially exposed to lots of uh, germs and viruses then you should have a good cough and sneeze hygiene which means don't just like cough and sneeze into the open air but also don't just cough and sneeze into your hands like use a tissue and throw it away or use your elbow or something like not your hands um, did i mention a few weeks ago that i was sitting down on the tube and a man standing over me blew his nose while standing over me facing me also a no-no yeah 
Um, Londoners, you're gross. Which <laughs> Get your shit together. <laughs> which is the next point. It's keep your distance. Stay between yeah. one and two meters away from other people. Um, if yeah, to to avoid. If possible, spread. stay out of London. It's <laughs> yes. dirty. Um, and finally, if but you also apparently Berlin. <laughs> and uh, that also includes like don't don't shake hands unnecessarily like it's like it's not necessary to greet somebody with a handshake like i've seen a cool a few cool options like um people like just touching their feet yeah i actually have a segue for this so um i found a really nice article on the spin-off um which i think is a new zealand website um but it's called our hands are tied seven alternatives to shaking hands um and I am personally completely on their side and think that handshaking should never happen ever because yeah. I don't trust your ability to wash your hands. I think everybody's dirty. And like, I don't touch things on the public transport unless I really have to because I'm mildly hypochondriac. That's that's okay. I'm also weak. So like, in fairness, I have to protect my health because I have shitty lungs. Um, lung. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> this is something that I think we should do all the time. So they said seven alternatives. The first one, as Yoram said, is a foot tap. What else have we got? Um, stop, like kind of head yeah. nods up. Yeah, that's um, good. Sunglasser waggle. Doesn't work <laughs> if you don't have sunglasses or glasses. Yoram's, yeah, Yoram's got it happening. Um, hip bumping, which I don't, I also don't want your butt anywhere near no, me. So I guys. Stay a, a meter away so you can't yeah. hip bump. They have a New Zealand sign language option, which I think works if you know New Zealand sign language finger guns always cool <laughs> even better if you make that noise while doing them I want to see um, that in like a professional context you go to like a meeting and like you go to like all the professors well, like <laughs> I, you might say that but my friend my, my boss and I were talking about this today and she was trying to work out what stage has it become aggressive and what stage we're both Australians so I think like the aggression is kind of implied um, but we're <laughs> discussing like how to do and I think if you make <laughs> no, it's, it's never aggressive. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thing against my favorite so far. <laughs> so that's like one of the silver linings of coronavirus. I will say that we pick up these alternatives and we never let them go afterwards. Yeah. Is it is it an unfair stereotype if I relate like the the spread in Italy to the way they greet each other by like very be very upfront and like hugging and doing kisses on the cheek and this stuff i don't think so because they're air kissing usually they're not actually like licking each other on the face like i think it's actually less disgusting it's than the hand like holding germans that say like i've been to italy this is how they do it and then they like, like slobber your face and it's like this yeah, is that's how they the thing. do it i i think there's like the problem with that kind of like cultural thing is there's always that creepy person who pretends they're doing the cultural thing but they're just actually like mm. a pervert and they should be locked away they yeah. should be pepper sprayed. Let's be realistic. Like I've I've told you, if you yeah. if you come within ten centimeters of my face. <laughs> uh, um, so sorry, that was uh, we were talking about coronavirus. So yeah. there is a nice article on the Guardian which um, talks about kind of facts about coronavirus, and it's basically saying it is now more dangerous than the winter flu. This is something that Yaram and I were discussing last time. So like three or four weeks ago, we weren't really sure how risky it is. But it looks now like it has a higher mortality rate, about 10 times higher mortality rate than the flu. Um, and we don't really know how spread it is and how many cases there will be because at the moment the limiting factor is how much we're testing people as opposed to how many cases there are, right? This is kind of the, yeah. the danger thing. And another big issue is the fake news uh, around mm -hmm. it. Um, there's a lot of myths, uh, especially the 
the idea that if you that you have that stockpiling helps in any way and also that you that wearing a mask will protect you and lots of things like that um, and so i found an article that's um, on self.com about accurate coronavirus news and it has like a list of several credible sources that will link as well um, where you can find reliable information about this the, the outbreak and what you can do to protect yourself but we already like we, we covered the basics like wash your hands keep distance don't sneeze in public and if you have symptoms don't go out in public stay home yeah, don't go to work and, and say like ah this has to be done now I, I just have a mild cough no you're putting everybody around you at risk in your office on the transport and that some people are much weaker than you so yeah. they might like I mean this one seems to affect older people and hey maybe men more than women um, but don't be that person who spreads it to somebody who's weaker and they suffer because of you. Yeah. One more silver lining that might come out of this is that there's some discussion about China now clamping down on wildlife trade. So trying to really cut that down because one of the original reports was um, relating this coming from like a, an animal market in Wuhan. And there was also um, some likelihood that it came from these pang pangolins, these kind of small like armadillo-like creatures. Although I think that's not 100% certain. There's some some yeah. uncertainty there. But this could be a silver lining that it's protection for this wildlife that comes out of this. And uh, it also affects research. Um, I asked on, on Twitter to get some, some input on that because I've, I've uh, noticed that a lot of meetings and international gatherings were cancelled. And so some people sent me some plant conferences that were cancelled. So there is, for example, the Physics and Biology of Plant Growth Conference in Israel that got cancelled because of coronavirus. Then there is the uh, annual meeting of the Japanese Society of Plant Physiologists in Osaka that got cancelled. And I, I uh, guess a couple more as well. Yeah, I just saw that the world's biggest physics meeting, I forget what it's called, was cancelled a couple of days ago. And yeah, we've my company has basically said you can plan travel if you want to, but we're pretty much going to prevent all travel into the the, the danger states, the danger um, countries. Yeah. And yeah, we can't be certain about everything. And of course, anybody, if you don't feel safe traveling and your work wants you to travel, you don't have to travel. Just keep that in mind in most places. Like yeah. you're protected. Um, yeah. Stay safe, everyone. And hardly any business deal is that important that you can risk your health and then in turn the health of everyone around you when you bring back the disease. Um, so yeah, just... Be, be we don't want to be alarmist, it. but, you know, yeah. look after yourself. Yeah. yeah. And uh, to have a positive note to, to end this whole coronavirus segment on, I have um, an, another article from The Guardian. I hope you haven't seen it yet, um, which helps you to uh, wash your hands because you should wash your hands for 20 seconds. And it's hard to, or it's boring to just like count down 20 seconds when you wash your hands. So um, this article gathers the, 20, uh, the best 20 second songs to wash your hands to. So the best songs that have sort of a, a very, <laughs> like a, a part that is easy to remember that has, that's 20 seconds long. Um, Can you give us an example? Yeah, for example, uh, Take On Me from AHA. So the... Take me. on me, take on me. Yeah. Uh -huh. The only problem is it has a very high note. So you, like, when you do that, start as low as you can. So when you go high, you take have some, like, dynamic range. But that's one that you can sing in, in, the, uh -huh. in the bathroom while washing your hands. Another one that I think my personal favorite is Jolene from Dolly Parton or Jolene, in my case I, I'd rather like the, the version from The White Stripes 
um, Jolene, uh. Jolene, Jolene, Jolene. It's also very easy to remember because it's eight times Jolene with like just two other lines in there. Um, that works oh, out. Oh, please don't take him just because you can. Yeah. And um, th- there's th- they also... They're a little bit cheeky there at the Guardian. They say the song 4 minute 33 seconds by John Cage is good because you only need to have 20 seconds from it. And to like all the uncultured listeners, just like me, uh, I had to like look up what the joke there is. 4 minutes 33 by John Cage is a famous song that's just silence. It's 4 minutes 33 seconds of complete silence. Um, ah, okay. So it <laughs> doesn't really help you, does it? Uh, yeah. And the final one here is... Um, signs the five-man electrical band uh what? it's the and the sign said long-haired freaky people need not apply that's the song it's no, like from the 70s song. you don't know that song i i thought you know like of all people i would have thought you knew like a weird 70s hippie song about people with long Sorry. hair that can't find work but the first verse of this song is also about 20 seconds so it gives you like the right timing to wash your hands. Okay, I want to just mention very quickly two things that we didn't mention last week that I should have mentioned. Mm-hmm. The first is it's been going around all the blogs, all the articles, and all of the the Weatherverse or whatever the hell it's called. Um, there was a one billion year old seaweed fossil found. So this is the oldest ever algae that's mm-hmm. been found. It's a plant. It's awesome. Um, go and check that out. We'll put some links. But um, they've got some some fossils of that. Um, yeah, but I don't, that's all I want to say because it's, it's everywhere. So you can find that yourself. (laughs) And the second thing, which was also everywhere, not plant related, but there was a discovery of the first ever animal that doesn't need oxygen to survive. So Mm. there's a kind of small parasitic jellyfish like organism, which I think lives in the muscles of like large fish. Maybe they actually look a little bit like sperm, these creatures, um, but yeah, they don't have a mitochondria, which is kind of amazing. Um, okay. And this has also been going around everywhere. So again, not something I'm going to talk a lot about, but just insane. Definitely go and check out the picture of these little guys because they look like, yeah, little like tadpoles um, with little eyes and are very, very cool. But they're kind of a mystery as to how they exist and why they exist. But it does make sense that they live in this anaerobic environment in the middle of a... I think in a fish, in fish muscles. So they don't really have access to oxygen. So they don't need to be doing mitochondrial things. But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, bizarre. Yeah, they look like alien sperm because they have these like two very pronounced dark shapes in there that look like eyes. And then you have this long tail. Yeah, alien sperm is exactly the right thing, I think. Yeah. Um, Cool, yeah. We put some links on, guys. Go, Go look at the links. This one's definitely worth having a little look at. Uh, I found an article on the BBC about uh, Australian fires um, where they say the climate change boosted the chance of uh, fires happening about 30%, which uh, Mm -hmm. what a new study found. And they estimate if we hit the two degree climate, uh, like global heating mark, um, that will make uh, forest fires in Australia about four times more likely, which I found quite terrifying news. uh, so yeah, not 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 so fun, but interesting to see how they now now like in the wake of the fires they can now do like they do now research on it to figure out like do we have to expect more of this in the future? Probably not because my government is still pretending nothing is happening with climate change. So <laughs> yeah. wake up Australia, you're burning. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, it's a bit disappointing. I think I've discussed, I've, I've ranted about this before, so let's not let's not do it again. Yes. But um, my country's politics suck right now. Yep. Um, let's do something fun. This is from Scientific Reports. Um, there was a paper which I think is right up your arms alley. Okay. Um, it's called Salamanders and Other Amphibians Are Aglow with Biofluorescence. And you can actually find the full article on ResearchGate, so I really encourage you to check it out. Um, because basically these two authors took a whole lot of amphibians and shoved them under a UV light to see if they glow. Uh. And we're already familiar that some animals can do this. So GFP, this green fluorescent protein that we use in biology, comes from like jellyfish and anemone species. But they basically wanted to see if there was some visible like signals on these animals that we can't see to the native na- naked eye that glow under... Um, black light basically and it, it's really cool there's some pictures of these um, salamanders glowing at different places and what i thought was kind of the most interesting was a species called typhlonectus patens which i then looked up because i had no idea what it actually was um, but this is kind of like a worm looking species and it has this bright glowing spot around its like sexual organs so it basically has like a something which glows has this um, bioluminescence which directs you to where it wants like sex bits um, and then i looked up this species and the species is a Sicilian, not to be confused with the Italian people. It's like a worm. It's kind of a type of amphibian which looks like a worm. So it's it's an amphibian. It's not like a nematode or um, an annelid. It's not related to worms. It's related to, to frogs. But it looks disgusting. It's like a naked worm, which it's just, it's horrible. Um, it actually it means Latin for blind ones and yeah, it's a big worm. It's it's really, really gross. Go check that out if you're not scared of worms or snakes and be grossed out a little bit. <laughs> but also definitely check out the really, really pretty pictures of yeah. glowing newts in this paper. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's an open access paper. I just looked at the pictures. They're very pretty. So check that out. Um, I have a, a fun and uh, thing that's uh, from a website called Poetweet. Uh, .com.br <laughs> from Brazil. It's a poem called Promoters Before by Plants and Pipettes. And the mobile networks collapse. Uh-huh. Less deep research for the topics. The mRNA is later released when we talked about agrivoltaics. Deep breath. So much better. To link to original papers. Preferred length. Hashtag academic chatter. And they help us to unders. Le goût était pareil once. And tools. You can find it here. Things to say about the science. Response of plants to terrain are always talking about plants. Ah, stem, you've done it again. <laughs> Which it sounds like nonsense, and it's it's certainly nonsense. But this is a little tool that composes a poem from your tweets, and I played around with it, and I found it quite fun. Um, so I think stem, you've done it again is really nice. We should use that quite often. Can we make that a hashtag? <laughs> Hashtag stem you've done it again. I I think this phrase is from a tweet that you sent from the account. So actually, like, you're crediting yourself. Well done to you. Yeah, I I often find myself the wittiest. But I still think hashtag stem you've done it again is pretty good. (laughs) 
Use it from now on, Yarm. I instruct you. <laughs> okay, I will. Let's do, do that. fun things. Um, Chinese one hundred thousand strong duck army bound for Pakistan. <laughs> I saw um, uh, one of my friends sent me this, and it was beautiful. The idea is that the duck army is going to eat locusts, so there's like a swarm of these bugs, which can be very devastating for crops. And the ducks can act as a biological control because ducks are awesome, and they eat the bugs, and they. I guess they can then be eaten themselves, honestly. Like, I don't know what the, the end of this is. In the end, it's probably fake news. There was then a comment um, on a few different sources saying that it's probably not going to happen, but it it could be done, and that makes me happy. <laughs> I just like the idea that now you have a duck plague and <laughs> you have just, like, ducks flying in your face and everywhere you open the door and suddenly there's ducks everywhere. Um, I find that preferable to locusts. Just like the images of these, this, this locust plague makes me shudder all over. <laughs> like I really don't want to be anywhere near. I like also like the way that ducks walk. It's very like um, like Imperial March. Like they stomp, mm. stomp, 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 stomp. Like you can just be like, they dun, be. dun, dun, duck, 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 duck. duck. <laughs> and now I'm getting sued by George Lucas. He seems like litigious. <laughs> no, it's Disney. They're even more so. Um, <laughs> I have something which comes with the the theme. I think like a few episodes back, I created a new segment called like insane PhD projects, um, mm -hmm. which we never really followed up on. But I saw something recently about the first known extraterrestrial protein that might have been discovered. So there was a meteorite and it had a protein. Um, we're going to link you to one. This is at space.com. And I really like the way the, um, the title and the stand first of this um article work because as i said it's called wait where can i find my tab again first known extraterrestrial protein possibly spotted in meteorite and then the stand first but the find is preliminary so apparently nobody believes this is actually happening but i i saw this on my um google now or something and i immediately sent it to all of my friends who i used to work with and said that's a shame one of our phd students has just been scooped which i found very hilarious and then nobody responded but anyway i think it's it's I find it funny, the idea of having this insane PhD student project where the PhD student has to work on extraterrestrial proteins. But it's probably not true, or it's not true yet, or we don't know. The thing is, like, it's, um, it's, it's only on archives, so it's not um, peer-reviewed, and they found this protein by mass spec, and I don't know, it's probably keratin, right? So this is a thing with mass spec where you're looking for proteins and you always, like, we're doing plant samples, and you always get keratin, which is um, the protein which forms, like, um, hair and fingernails and it's just all over your skin so you're processing your plant proteins and then your mass spec is just filled with keratin which cannot possibly be in the plants and it means that like it's fallen out of your beard or something yeah. disgusting yeah. like that so but for us plant yeah. people there's an easy fix you just delete Space the keratin garden. like you filter it out of your data set because you say this is contamination we don't care for it like or I could a science never work paper I just discovered plant keratin <laughs> I could never work in like a, a human um, protein lab and like deal with like my well, you'd have to shave your beard if nothing else yeah and that's not going to happen <laughs> do you have something else or should we go to the cat fact I have something else like good like paranoia based oh that's good yeah we do you want to indulge my paranoia some more, some more paranoia that's always useful okay what are the three things i fear the most in this world uh crows yeah um like men in dark alleys no incorrect they should fear me <laughs> good good uh, good position there um 
Yeah, you're pretty you're fearless. I only know that you really fear crow crows. Okay. Well, listeners, you're excused. Yoram has now just subjected himself to many more rants about Velociraptors, number two fear, and zombies, number three fear, in his near future. <laughs> but definitely crows is the top fear, I basically, because like it's the only one which exist. actually exists. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why crows are the things I'm most scared of out of the three. Like, Velociraptors could exist, zombies could exist. Probably not. Could exist. Um, crows do exist. Um, so in this kind of smart birds, I'm not just thinking of crows, but also magpies, which are like Australian crow relatives, which are terrifying and attack your head. Um, and basically anything in that family which can think, remember, hold grudges, spread information about grudges, and then attack you when you least suspect it. And probably also open doors. Like, yeah. okay. <laughs> So there's a recent study which came out on Kia, which is a type of large, angry-looking parrot from New Zealand. It's known to be very curious, um, but it's also known to fuck things up. So it comes and it curiously um, deconstructs parts of cars or um, curiously, like, I don't know, eats your baby or something like that. And there's been some studies um, on the intelligence of these Kia birds and they previously showed that they can train the Kias so you can give you can teach Kia that if it gets a two different types of token if it gets a black token it gets a reward if it gets an orange token it doesn't get a reward so if you kind of play with these tokens and throw them around they'll only take the black ones and they'll just ignore the orange ones because they know that the orange ones are worthless even though they look exactly the same except for the color they can also be sneaky, so usually there's kind of a hierarchical structure where the Kias have to let the, the like the dominant Kia present his token first and get the reward. And one of the researchers anecdotally commented that she noticed one of the, the subordinate Kias kind of like come up behind her and like tap her on the shoulder and give her the token so that it could kind of get this this reward without having to go through the natural hierarchy. And the recent publication, which also came out in Nature Communications recently, shows that Kias can learn if humans have bias. So they had different humans and one human just randomly picked out tokens. So like, say you have a box mixed with orange and black, the humanly random picks it out. And another human always looks and sorts through things and chooses the black. So in the first study, there was like mostly orange tokens and the human would sort through all the orange, pick the black and then give it to the Kia. And the Kia could learn that given like opportunity of the future that biased human who was deliberately giving it the black one was the best one to go with mm -hmm. and this is kind of a new kind of understanding or knowledge which has not been seen i think in birds before and it's quite cool that they can yeah recognize this like they can reason something basically they can recognize this bias and and understand complex <laughs> traits right yeah <laughs> I just so I think we should be afraid of them. <laughs> I just remember Kias from like a, a show when I was uh, a young child. I watched like one of these nature documentaries, and um, there were some like documentary filmers that went to New Zealand to film these these birds, and these birds came and completely took apart the car that these these people came in, like while they were like filming yes. them. So most of the footage they got was like the the, the Kia birds just like pulling out all of the the rubber from the, from the car like all of the ceilings around the windows they had like a little camper yeah. van and they completely took it apart um and were filmed that, doing that's so. them so uh, yeah and um, this article is basically saying that they also like to like steal people's keys and throw them into lakes <laughs> and the article ends with saying 
Just remember, the next time a big green parrot takes off screaming with your car keys, rest assured you've been pranked by one of the world's smartest birds. <laughs> Which like, doesn't make me feel better about myself in any way. <laughs> I'm just sad that the, the article doesn't have pictures of the Kia birds. Like, I like, uh, there's pictures. There's, there's figures, oh. but not of the birds. Oh, go to the news article. Yeah, oh, yeah. don't go. Um, yeah, go I, to the news I article. like these birds. I like parrots a lot. I like birds a lot. Um, I probably yeah. would not like want to have a, a, a Kia because it would uh, like wreak havoc. <laughs> um, it would take out both of your cats and your baby child. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they have a very like mean beak. It's very sharp and pointy. So um, yeah, I I would not want to mess with them, but I really enjoy their like shenanigans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have a cat fact now. Let's play like today. <coughs> The jingle is actually warranted. Ready? Cat fact. Cat fact. Cat fact. <laughs> I found an article. Um, it's from last year, from 2019, uh, from Science Magazine. Uh, it's called Cats Rival Dogs on Many Tests of Social Smarts, but is anyone brave enough to study them? Um, it goes on about like how hard it can be to, to study cats. But what I really liked about this article is that there is a little... like experiment yourself on your cat section which is how socially smart <laughs> is your cat and there's like a couple of experiments that you can do and um, see like what it means and what you can learn from it as an owner so the first one is like does your cat know its name so when your cat is calm say four words of about the same length and accent as it uh, as it's a name waiting 15 seconds between words then say its actual name and then if your cat gradually reacts less to each random word but responds to its name by turning its head towards you rotating its ears or moving its tail it probably knows its name and this m might tell you that it's easier to train this cat um, when it knows its name because you can then use that name to then mm -hmm. have it followed by verbal commands um, and so the lucky and lilu know their names yeah they do like when i when i call their names they like come towards me i think usually they, they expect food um, but, but did you do the works. test? Did you do like the, the four different I words? I actually thing? didn't do it yet. Uh, but I will. And you call yourself a male scientist <laughs> in the future now. So yeah, I just um, I actually didn't like read everything in there because it's quite a long article. But I think it's a good article because the bits that I read I found them interesting. And I will do these experiments on my cats in the very mm -hmm. near future. I will okay, that's your homework for next week, I think. <laughs> yes, and see that. I mean, the, um, there's like. How independent is your cat? Sit in a room with your cat, ignore it, sitting quietly or, or paying attention to a book or phone for two minutes. Then try to interact with your cat, call it to you. If it comes, pet and talk to it. And it shows like if the cat comes and is very playful, then it's like a very social cat. And that means that it's probably like, like social rewards work for this cat when you want to train this cat. Mm -hmm. um, so these are not very strong experiments and not a good assessment of its intelligence, but it gives you an understanding of how your trad, your cat works and I think um, for most of these things I have already like an understanding from knowing my cats like there's also one where they should prefer you over food and I know that like no. my male cat doesn't prefer me over food or my female no, cat maybe would food. but probably not as well follow us on social media please on Instagram and on Facebook, we're at Plants and Pipettes. There you can talk to me. On Twitter, you can talk to me at Plants Pipettes. And there we also, like, I'm very happy for any corrections about the things that I say wrong. 
Yeah, on all of the, on all, just tell us that your arm's wrong on all of the different platforms. Um, we also have a blog, which is www.plantsandpipettes.com. You can also comment on our blog post and say your arm is wrong. <laughs> and um, you can rate us on iTunes. That always helps a lot. And uh, your arm is wrong. <laughs> Five stars. Um, and what also helps us uh, a great lot if you, is if you share our stuff so if you share the links to our articles or mm. to this episode um spread the word um because this is the one of the biggest challenges for us is like getting more people interested so if you like what we're doing tell your friends about it um, and maybe they like it too and sometimes we're really tired and we can't come up with new ideas so if you have anything that you want us to talk about feel free to throw that feel free to throw them our way Wow, I struggled with that. Um, and let us know what you want us to mention. And especially if you're a young scientist and you want us to feature your work on plant molecular biology, we'd love to talk about it, talk to you and talk about your science. Yeah. So with that, uh, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And goodbye. Adieu, adieu to you, to you, to you.